0: Hello, and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Mike Casey to the show. Mike is the founder of TigerComs, where he counsels clean tech executives, investors, and philanthropists on strategies for meeting their business objectives. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm really good,
1: Raj. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Thanks for being on, Mike. Mike, I'd like to kick things off with something Interesting about my guests that most people wouldn't know. So, if you'd like to share, I'd really appreciate it. Well,
1: that's a tough question, Raj. I, I think I'm, I think I'm pretty boring. Uh, when when victory for you on a Saturday night is being in bed at eleven o'clock with a book, I think you're past your point in your life where you're interesting. But um, I suppose the thing that most people are interested in when they learn about me is that I'm leading, I guess a not quite a double life, but a life and a half where <laughs> the, the other half of the life is spent on the mat as a pretty serious Brazilian jiu-jitsu hobbyist. It's a, it's a huge part of my life. And I competed for a while. I'm taking a hiatus while my kids are in high school. And I plan to go back to competition when my son leaves the house in five years.
0: So that is pretty interesting. And I like the way you said double life um, I have some experience in that arena too. I was doing it from 98 through 2001 and I exited once, um, we were going to a family wedding and I had some face creeps on the mat yeah. and my mother looked at me and said, what are you doing now? And I said, you know what, maybe it's a little time to stop.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've had at least three conversation starter face markings from judo which for your listeners who don't know it's it's what happens on the ground in UFC mm-hmm. it, no one's hitting you but you do occasionally get an elbow or a knee to your face and you look like it for a while afterwards so you, you end up having some some ice breaking distinctive looks for a while when you go to trade shows or meetings but you know it's there there are worse hobbies I suppose, and certainly ones that aren't nearly as good for you.
0: Totally agree. And as for Saturday night, eleven AM, I think I got you beat. Given the option, I'd be in bed by nine. <laughs> so my kids kind of look at me, but yep, nine o'clock with the book sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> yep. So Mike, give us some background on Tigercom's, you know, what it is and how long you've been doing it.
1: So Tigercom is the US's premier clean economy, marketing communications, and public affairs firm. We service the wind, solar, battery storage, and pay sectors. We've got other sectors that we do other work in as well. But our mission is to help the U.S. economy transform to a much more sustainable footing as quickly as possible. We've been around for 14 years. We are roughly 15 people spread across the country. And we represent some of the biggest names in clean energy, Trina Solar, Vestas, Renew Financial, Apex, and Eon, to name a few.
0: So 14 years of doing this, how have you seen the landscape change?
1: That's a really good question. And we could spend a good hour discussing those changes. I would love to. (laughs) I started this firm to address three gaps. I spent 12 years in the environmental community and along the way I had three slow revelations. One of them is we were trying to beat something with nothing. We were saying no to dirtier legacy ways of doing things, essential things in the economy. But we didn't have something we were saying yes to. The second gap w- really was that we, were, we didn't have much in the way of infrastructure to deliver that alternative narrative. And the third was we had, in my opinion, a very low and not very durable talent base in the ranks of clean economy communicators. In mm-hmm. all three of those areas over the last 14 years, I have seen significant changes all for the better in the macro sense. And I think that we have, we have a better average communicator working at companies and trade associations. We have many more pieces of effective infrastructure to deliver the narrative. Mm-hmm. And the narrative is exponentially stronger so we've gone from 2 or 3% penetration now we're in the upper single digits of penetration on the pure clean energy sources we are rapidly electrifying the vehicle fleet and yes we're at the early stage in all of these things but the pace of growth is it's quite strong and that is in the face of some i think uneven execution steps that our sector has taken in some critical mm-hmm. ways, but by and large, if, if someone were to ask me in one sentence or phrase, our state of clean economy case-making, I would say accelerating momentum, dwindling time.
0: That's an interesting way to put it. Could you elaborate on some of the cases where you've actually helped individuals, you know, craft their messages?
1: Yeah, I think one- one person that I'm particularly proud of, we've done work for, is a guy named Chris Brown, who is the president of Vessus North America. Chris has mm-hmm. notched the largest single sale of wind turbines in the history of the world. Two gigawatt sale. Wow. Yeah, And he is, he is a extremely bright man. I, I affectionately tell him that he's a whirling dervish. I mean, he just, he, he's a mile a minute guy. He has done, I think he, he has become, by all accounts, the most prominent voice in the wind industry during our service for him. And I think he has the potential to become one, one of the more prominent voices in the clean energy sectors writ large, because mm-hmm. Vestas has indicated its interest in publicly and in moving into both solar and storage. I think... Mark Goodwin, who's the CEO of Apex, he he started off like other counterparts at the primarily wind IPPs with mm-hmm. very um, very low LinkedIn following. Now Mark routinely gets ten thousand plus views per post on LinkedIn, which has become, I think, by all accounts, the premier b2b marcom platform social media platform for the clean economy agree i could go on but i think those two gentlemen are are um they're particularly prominent I, I i would say i'm I'm close to uh two real powerhouse women in the sector one is stephanie mcclellan who is a not only a client but a dear friend of mine and as the head of the special initiative and in offshore wind she's widely credited with bringing, bringing forth the U.S. offshore wind industry and is we now are seeing her nonprofit philanthropically backed effort in a bit of a handoff, a baton pass, to mm-hmm. large offshore wind developers. But Stephanie did some very effective messaging to get an industry – set up for success here, I think, in this country. And, you know, the offshore wind potential is is huge. And I think also another friend of mine who we've done some work for as well is Abby Hopper. I think we've done less to help her find her voice than we have others. We played a very bit role. But just her prominence and her rising voice in the space has been mm-hmm it's been very exciting to be around because I think Solar's in this continues in this very explosive growth and she's done a lot of credit to the early work done by Scott Sklar and then Roan Rash, who were her two predecessors running SIA. And Abby I think is a worthy successor to their legacy.
0: When these individuals come to you, what are some of the steps you help them to you know, help them find their voice?
1: In all of these cases, we wanna start with the management consultant's question that Simon Sinek, I think he's the one articulated, start with why. Mm -hmm. What is our desired future state that we want to get to? So clear definition of point B and then clear definition of point A. Those two things, being clear-eyed about them and being ruthless in their definition helps you then identify the most important group of people you want to talk to. Once you've gotten those two eat your peas steps down, what's our outcome? And who's Mm -hmm. going to give it to us? Then you can move to what we call the fun zone of communications work, which is the creative derivation of the language you want to use that will speak to that audience's existing beliefs, self-interest, and values. And A lot of communications work takes place in that third step, but there's a lot of, in my opinion, under-focus on those first two foundational steps. Where do we want to get to? Who's going to give it to us? Who has the final say-so? Who casts the vote? Who writes the check? Who makes the purchase decision? Who decides to, Mm -hmm. to make an investment in the company? And I think we we've joked over the years that we're the vegetable leaders in the clean economy communication space. You know, we, we believe very much in eating vegetables before we go to dessert and mm-hmm. to the point, I think sometimes of are being boorish, but you know, we, we have a really good client set that, that puts up with our nudging on, on these um, fronts. And we were just mm-hmm. doing a session that I described last week for a very exciting company. We're not able to discuss our work for them publicly yet, but I think they're gonna they're gonna be a very interesting storage and grid stabilization play in the months ahead, and you you will definitely be hearing about them.
0: The fun zone. Can you share more?
1: The fun zone of, of messaging and message delivery. Correct. Yeah. Well, we've got certain methodologies that we use to help distill a person. A product or a company down to its essence, and there are many ways to do that in the consulting world. There are message boxes, there are message triangles, there are message houses. Over time, I have found that those ways, though they seem simple, they don't have that intuitive appeal. They're more PC than than Apple, and we've got a system that we like better. It seems to perform better with a wider variety of people, where we we ha- we try to distill the company, product, or person down to three of the most essential points. And then we use those, we we take the essence of each of those three points and we compact them into a what we call a top line or a, a mm-hmm. the most important elevator pitch that you can give. What's challenging and professionally very interesting is the era that we're in now, what Seth Godin calls the long tail era. The balancing act is to keep the brand essence that you come up with through a certain methodology, but then you vary the message essence, the brand essence, just enough to get it to really speak to a diverse set of prioritized audiences. That make up your long tail you know, cohorts.
0: You know, you've mentioned two of my favorite authors, Simon Sinek and Seth Godin. Going back to Simon Sinek for a moment, you know, what is your why? Why are you pursuing this so hard the last 14 years?
1: The origins of this company, unbeknownst to me, came about when I read the first textbook I read in the first college course that I took at Ohio State University. It was The 29th Day by Lester Brown, who I think is still alive. And at the time, he was the preeminent environmental trends counter um, in the world. And he wrote this book, and it was one of many that he had and went on to write, that had largely the same orientation, which is we as human caretakers of our home, that is this earth. We are not long-term thinkers. We do not have the Iroquois Indian perspective of seven generations. So we end Mm. up collectively treating our pantry like a toilet, our living room like a garbage can. And we have this idea that there is an away and throw away when really there isn't. It's a closed loop system and what you throw out, you're going to end up eating. And we're finding that now literally... The plastic we have Mm -hmm. thrown away is breaking down into microplastics and ingesting the seafood that we eat. So literally the plastic that other people have thrown away is now coming back into me when I have a piece of shrimp. And when I read that premise 33 years ago, 34 years ago, it really riveted me. And Mm -hmm. I said, I'm going to spend my life trying to address this problem whatever way I can. So I shaped the intervening years with a pretty linear focus on being the best sustainability communicator that I could be. And that took a number of paths. I spent 10 years in politics. I spent 10 to 12 years in the environmental movement. And then I've spent the last 14 years building this firm. There's some overlap at the start and end to each of those three eras. But that's really been the focus is how do we publicly case make to human beings who are by biological wiring, short-term focused, how do we get them to think long-term? And I'm still chipping away at it. You know, we've had some short-term wins. I can't tell you the environmental trends are going in the direction that any of us will want them to go in in a macro sense. But Confucius said once, better to light one candle than to curse of the darkness. And the older I get the more, the more sanctuary that I find in really leaning into this idea that you do what you can do and you do it with extreme focus and extreme detachment on the thing, relative to the things that you cannot affect. And I think Trump is an invitation for extreme detachment.
0: That's an interesting way to put it. And, you know, you mentioned the word caretaker earlier and, you know, Along with you, I believe that we are stewards of everything we've been given, and it's incumbent on us to be good stewards of the environment, ourselves, our bodies, family, finances, so totally agree with you.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, when I turned 50, I spent a week with 500 of my best friends at a Eckhart Tolle seminar, and I, I spent years raging at polluter industry lobbyists. To me, they were a parasitical class of of people whose motivations I found completely revolting. I, for years, thought that they were the more equivalent of, of drug pushers. They knew mm-hmm. that they were doing evil. They convinced themselves that the evil they were doing was okay because they, they kind of had excuses that sounded like drug dealers would offer. Hey, if I don't do it, someone else will do it. Everybody hey, it's nobody's business, it's a harmless thing to do, et cetera. No, actually, it's very harmful. But a- as time got on and I, I matured and I became less furious about that, I, I began to see the, the drag on effectiveness that rage and anger are. And mm-hmm. when I went to that Eckhart Tolle seminar, about two-thirds of the way through, it struck me that we really don't have a sustainability problem in this country or a social justice problem, we have a problem of presence. That's
0: that's very interesting.
1: Because I think that if you look at what, if you ask this bigger question, what is the root of this this crazy relationship that we as a society have with our <clears throat> the biological foundations of our existence? I think the disconnect is the same disconnect that have people treat each other badly because they because of differences in sexual orientation, skin color, socioeconomic status, nationality. And the more unconscious that we are, the more damage that we as human beings can go do. That is not to say that we should all meditate in caves. It's not to say mm-hmm. that the solution to the sustainability problems we have can be found solely in the church pew. But I do think that the more presence more people can have, the faster we will solve these existential problems. And I think sustainability is the king of the problems as a lack of consciousness manifests because unlike other problems that humanity faces, environmental and sustainability problems Whatever is lost can never be regained. So you can, you can argue that racial divisions, there is an endpoint to racial divisions. If you, just, if you look at the demographic trends, over mm-hmm. time, we're, the younger generations are seeing racial differences as less than the prior generations. Demographically, we're becoming a more diverse country and even if even if you did nothing in these areas, which I'm obviously not advocating that we do, there is a demographic and attitudinal undercurrent that takes us to a place of greater justice, greater harmony, and greater relatedness among people. Mm-hmm. However, the opposite is true with sustainability problems. You cannot unextinct a species. You cannot uncontaminate an aquifer. You cannot unpave a wetland, and you cannot get Japanese stilt grass out of a northeastern US forest. You can't get kudzu out of southeastern swamplands. You just go on and on and on. So the contamination of the biosphere, the scrambling of the of the biota, the the, the poisoning of water supplies, you're talking about degrading the very bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, our ability to meet our most basic needs. And mm-hmm. it's the problem that's going to affect 100% of people on the planet, not evenly and not all at once, but it's going to affect all of us. We're all in it together. There is no planet B and we are. we're acting as if it doesn't matter because we can just bury ourselves in a video game or on YouTube. And mm-hmm. I think what we're finding now in the research on human happiness is that past a fairly low level of material needs met, more money, more busyness, more electronic noise does not make you happier. In fact, it's the opposite. And there's a hopeful message in that. I think it's, there's, because as someone who has, you know, I've encountered one time After reading Malcolm Gladwell's The Outliers, Mm -hmm. he quoted that statistic that at 10,000 hours of deliberate intentional practice at a particular skill is when you can expect to achieve mastery. I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation, and I found out I'd spent 65,000 hours of intentional focus and practice in my professional life. Now, does that make me a master? I I, will leave that for others to decide. But I think it does give me historical perspective, my career started pre-internet. So I've had the benefit of both pre and post-internet commencement. And I've been able to see where the trends go. And I really think that this problem is existential. And it's so big. It's the, it's the worst problem we've ever faced in the world. And in the history of the world, that we, we are only going to be successful in getting ourselves and our fellow humans to move in the right direction if we're having a conversation at a level of presence and more immediate levels, policy, buying habits, et cetera.
0: So I think it's very interesting that you're bringing it back to the common denominator of presence. Um, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. And I've got a lot of experience in the digital space and software space. And, um, you know, unfortunately from what I'm seeing even though there are some movements where individuals are trying to regain presence I still see a lot of challenges in the future especially in the younger generations I have young children too and you know I see all the attempts to distract them and to take their attention away from perhaps what's at hand or what's important so I think that's really interesting that you brought it back to presence and teeing off on that you know if there's a piece of advice that you could share with the audience, what would it be?
1: So let me walk the walk of the methodology that I gave you. Who is our audience on the show? Or which segment of your show's audience would you like me to address that to?
0: Well, I'll tell you who the broader audience is. The broader audience is individuals that are interested in hearing the stories of individuals that are part of this sustainability renewable movement that's the broader audience. If I could bring it even narrower, what we're finding is that there are many in the um, development community, in renewable and sustainable. There are people that are interested in the financing of projects. So that's a more narrower focus. But the broader focus is actually, you know, I'm trying to uncover individuals like you and why you've been part of this journey.
1: So let me take your question in the context of the audience that you defined it narrowly as being my advice to them is going to be the focus of an upcoming post i'm going to be writing which is the case to stop using opaque terms in the way we communicate there is there's a blessing in working for clean economy companies and you end up working for some incredibly smart people Mm mm-hmm Brilliant people advancing technology and management structures and problem solving in ways I could never do. And it's, it's thrilling to work with and for them. At the I same agree. time, that brilliance ends up almost handicapping them from communicating in ways that follow the current rules of the road. What we're seeing is that Americans spend 5.7 hours a day on screens and counting. We're bombarded Mm -hmm. with estimates from 15,000 to 55,000 messages a day. And there's controversial estimates about the attention span of people that's going south of eight seconds. Mm -hmm. And the point is that you have less and less time to get and hold attention. Therefore, shame on you if you use jargon, if you use acronyms, if you use non-conversational language. We have in our firm what we call the supermarket checkout line test. So when we message Mm -hmm. a company, can you use that messaging next weekend if you're in line at Whole Foods and the person behind you asks you what you do? Can you explain to Mm -hmm. them in terms that they can get if that person works at a retail store or drives a truck or stocks grocery shelves for a living? Can you explain it to them? Richard Branson once said, any fool can complicate something. It takes a master to simplify it. So I want to make a case to clean economy executive teams that we have an enduring passion for plain powerful language. Because if you must use jargon and insider terms to explain your product offering, you are handicapping yourself right out of the box. And unnecessarily so. I have never seen a product or company or person that cannot be messaged to pass the supermarket checkout line. Not one time. And I've been professionally messaging as a con- consultant for the better part of fifteen years, and I've been messaging complex topics for thirty-four years. Never seen it.
0: Wow! So, give me an example of these opaque terms. I'd like to know some. Make sure I am not using carbon that. emissions,
1: greenhouse gases. I, I could just, you know, I, I, um, I want to get my confirmation class nun to come out of the retire- out of their retirement home with her ruler. and smack smack the hand of everybody who uses these stupid terms. Stop using the word emissions. It's a nothing term. It's pollution. Mm -hmm. It's pollution. Why don't we use the term pollution? Why do you use the Mm -hmm. greenhouse gases? Why do we call this global warming or climate change? If I could go back in time, we would have called it global climate disruption. Why? Because for the last 25 years, we could own the we could we could own the cold stuff.
0: Have you read the book by Frank Luntz? Yes. Words that work. Yes, many times. Actually- He's one of my favorite guys, and I not from a political standpoint, but just you know from a from a wordsmithing standpoint. And I and I to- totally agree with you. In fact, this weekend, and let me see if I pass your test. This weekend, I was sitting with my father-in-law, and the topic of you know work came up, and I had to mention anaerobic digestion. And he said, you know, the, the the kind of the blank look came across. And I said, well, just imagine it being like your stomach. And he got it right away. Yes. So
1: I've actually I, I, I've i been around Frank Luntz. I've been I he invited me to his house one time for a party. I've spent significant time around him and he is a brilliant man. But what he's particularly brilliant at is communicating what he finds in focus groups. There's controversy in the public opinion research industry. And whether or not his methods for harvesting public opinion insights are as good as others. And I don't, I can't tell you that I can settle that controversy. But what I can tell mm-hmm. you firsthand is he is very, very good at communicating the power of simplicity and well-chosen language. And the more jargony you are, the less powerfully you are communicating, even in expert circles. And what what I found in training these 2,000 plus people is that the smarter somebody is, the more specialized his or her expertise is, pretty reliably, the more resistant they are to using plain language and repetition in a disciplined message delivery task.
0: I can see that Especially the repetition piece, because I feel like what my experience is and you know, I had my own company in the past, and there's this book I keep on my table regarding the immutable laws of marketing, and one of the things that um, you know Al Reese talks about I think he talks about this is that if you're not sick of hearing your message, you haven't said it enough.
1: Yeah. That's 100 percent true. I would, I would use even more um, gripping analogies about the sickness of hearing your own message, but he's 100 percent right.
0: So let's go back to something earlier in the conversation. It's Saturday night, 11 p.m. What are you reading?
1: Hmm. I, well, I'm currently, I I read in two forms. There's recreational reading that I do on my off hours. And I think I just finished um, a Bill Bryson book on Australia. I just think he's a lovely writer. It's just fun. And then there's the work reading that I do, which I I do primarily through Audible and Blinkist because it's, I don't find it in me to come home and do firsthand reading, reading on the page of professional advancement work, I guess I'll call it. It's just, it's kind of a busman's holiday and, and, and I don't really want to, I need a break when I get home. But I think right now I'm, I'm, I'm going through a really good series by Google. I think it's called Learn with Google. They've got some really interesting intra-company and external talent that they bring on and have interviews with. I'm also a big fan of David Baker and Blair Inns. I listen to pretty much all their podcast episodes. And yeah, I think those, those are, and then those are the guys I'm patronizing regularly. But I think, the The professional books I'm reading, they tend to be about clean tech and clean tech business directions. And then there's just generic marcom and management skill building.
0: Got you. Well, Mike, I really appreciate your time today and I really enjoyed having you on. I'll be sure to put a link to your site on the uh, post when I post it. Any last bits of advice?
1: Yeah, I think we, for the audience that you've identified for this show. I think the more that we can be supporting each other in the production of smart, insight-focused content, the more of an echo chamber we can build around our efforts. And we need to recognize that most of the sectors in the clean economy are not new industries. They are new sectors. And by Mm -hmm. definition, we are displacing powerful incumbent players within the industries that we are trying to grow and they're not going to give up market share easily. And they have maturity that had a seven, eight, nine decades that's allowed them to build up an echo chamber around new products, new ideas, smart policy messaging. And we don't have their budgets, but we sure as heck can learn from their wins and their failures and raise our game, albeit at lower budgets. So I, I think that the most important thing we can do here is understand that as disruptors, we have disruptor needs, but we have to we have to invest like a disruptor would, which is disproportionate to the early stage that most of our companies are at in public case making, whether it's to markets, customers or policymakers.
0: Well, here's to raising our game, Mike.
1: Absolutely. Raj, thank you so much.
0: Appreciate you, Mike. Thank you so much. We'll catch up with you soon. Take care.
1: Bye now.